told my grandson Cole when he was here a few weeks ago, I said, I introduced him to Ricky, and I said, when you see Jesus, he'll be a lot like him. That's true. That's true. If you'll turn to Hebrews 9. I see there's a lot of old veterans, not old age-wise, but old veterans with us today, including a pretty hefty contingent from Indiana. I remember they told me I was going to Indiana, and I thought it was the state for weeks. I was amazed at my shock when I saw on the map that it was close to Pittsburgh. That's when I used to do 11 studies a week, and including radio. But in honor of all you old-timers, I don't have any notes today. Back before you had to wear bike helmets and all that safety stuff, remember that saying? I don't know if some of you are old enough to remember. Look, Ma, no hands. You'd go by the house, you learned how to ride a bike. Not only learned how to ride it, but you learned how to ride it with no hands. Well, look, church, no notes. I got to get back to this once in a while. It's old school. It's unplugged. It's everything that I started with. When you're doing 11 a week, you don't have notes, and you have very little time to study. I have a lot of time to study now, but let's take it with no notes today. In Hebrews chapter 9, we have several insights. Teaching is always a communication of insights, and we have a conglomeration of insights right in Hebrews chapter 9. Starting right in the radical center in verse 11, the 9-11 passage. And I guess we could say the first insight for our consideration is one that's in the treasure chest. We pull it out. It's one of the old things in the treasure chest. The scribe of the kingdom of heaven is the person who takes out of the treasure chest of divine revelations some old things and some new things. The old thing... Hebrews 9.11, Christ has come, the Messiah has come as one who brings good things, a bringer of good things. And I'm kind of giving the gist of this passage, but as he brings good things, we've learned that in the Greek text, it actually means that he brings good things that have already come and good things that are yet to come. And the good things that have come, not least among them, is a radical transformation and a radical alteration of the human situation and of the situation, really, of all of created reality. For in his first coming, and we also blend this with three comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming began with his incarnation, really his conception in the Virgin, his incarnation, and then throughout the days of his flesh, in Hebrews 5, 7, that's his incarnation in his first coming. His second coming is not what we used to think, where he's coming in glory and a universal manifestation, but rather it is the coming of Christ in the Holy Spirit. He told his disciples in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you without care. For I will come to you, and that coming has happened in the Holy Spirit. 
So the good things that have come is the radical alteration of the human situation for God was in Christ really throughout his first coming, throughout that whole time. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the world's sins to them. And he's made us ambassadors of that message. And we go out and say, be reconciled to God. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The scripture teaches that once a year, the great priest or the archpriest in Israel would go into the holiest place of all, the earthly tent, into the second, past the second curtain, into the holy of holies, to sprinkle blood that had been poured out. The poured out blood of Jesus Christ is the, for the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The sprinkled blood is when it's applied to all of creation and all of mankind. When the archpriest went in, he went in with the blood of others. He went in with the blood of bulls and goats, lambs, rams, mostly on the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, etc., our Lord Jesus Christ went into heaven itself, now to appear for us in the presence of God, as Hebrews 9.24 says. He, our great archpriest, went in not with the blood of others, but with his own blood, having eternal redemption, having obtained eternal redemption. We looked at that word, in fact, and it's the word herisko in the Greek, H-E-U-R-I-S-K-O, Herisco. And it means to discover after search, but it also means for our purposes to obtain after suffering. Everything that we have, all that we are in Christ, all of our inheritance is always tied to the desperate agony of Jesus Christ on the cross. But his incomprehensible suffering, which was at the close of his first advent, his first coming. Now, the hope that we have for his third coming is not ashamed. It isn't embarrassed in any way, and we shouldn't be embarrassed for having it. We shouldn't be embarrassed by those who say, where is the hope of his coming? Why is he delaying so long? He hasn't delayed, for he's with us. And hope is not a shame because in this meantime, this time in between that I call this in my notes, time in between, T-I-B, in this time in between, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And in the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus in Acts 16.7. He is the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.19. He is the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29. He's the spirit of truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. He shows us all the things that are freely given to us by God as the spirit of grace and the spirit of truth in John 14.16 and 14.17. So the coming of the spirit of truth is linked with Jesus coming to be with us in this time in between. That's an insight that we have been developing, the insight of the radical alteration of the human situation from one of enmity against God 
to one of friendship with God, reconciliation with God, something effected by God, something brought about by the mercy of God. Now, the mercy of God is at the base of everything in Hebrews. For the scripture says in Hebrews 1.3, having made purification for sins, Christ, the Son to whom God commits all things, and he is the heir of all things, after having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty of God speaks explicitly of his mercy. The majesty of God is the mercy of God manifested through the finished work of Jesus Christ for all of humanity. There's some things you ought to know about mercy. First of all, it's everlasting. And if you don't believe it, you can read Psalm 136 because it says it 26 times. Your mercy endures forever. That's why the redemption that he found, the redemption that he obtained at great cost, found after search, is eternal redemption because the mercy of God is everlasting. It has no end. The second thing you should know about mercy is that it is omnipotent. It is the omnipotent means of God saving all of mankind. And that's the third thing about mercy that you should know. God's mercy is saving mercy. In Titus 3.5, it is according to the mercy of God that he saved you. Not by works of righteousness that we have done. Not by works that we had done in a state of righteousness. No, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration which is effected by God himself in his own will, in Titus 3.5, along with James 1.18. He's the one who brought about our new birth, our second birth. Regeneration, a bath of regeneration through the renewal of the Holy Spirit that God has poured out plentifully upon us. Why plentifully? Because the Spirit being poured out on every person and each person is a preview of what he's going to be poured out on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. When the spirit is poured out on an individual, he evokes faith. When the spirit is in an individual, he stokes that faith, increases that faith, and he causes that faith, which is the hope of things hoped for or the expectation of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, he causes that faith to be in us and overflow in us as he causes hope to overflow. So there is that second coming of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. His third coming, as we've manifested in recent messages, will be a universal appearance in which he will effect the second radical alteration. A radical alteration not of the situation of mankind everywhere in all places and all times, but a situation in which the condition of mankind will be radically altered. For when he comes again, he, it will be to effect the change of our mortal bodies, for we will all be changed. That's not just all the church. That's all of humanity over the course of all time because God's mercy is not only everlasting, it's ever-reaching. God's mercy extends to all, and that's all without exception. 
So God's mercy, which is saving, is toward all, which means that his saving mercy saves all. There is no exception to this. There is no doubt about this. There is no maybe. There is no hopeful universalism in that message. There is a convinced universalism in that message, for Jesus Christ has universal saving significance. And that is, you'll see in some of the 22 articles that my brother in grace, Phil, mentioned this morning. And so he obtained eternal redemption. We mentioned this word, herisco, is used in the parables of Jesus Christ. One was when a man found a treasure in a field. The field is the world. The treasure is the redeemed. The redeemed is everyone in the world. He finds a treasure in the field. He goes and sells all that he has to buy that treasure. He found that treasure, and that's Herisco. And it's the same word used in Hebrews 9.12, where it says, he found eternal redemption for us. He went into the heavens, into the holy of holies in the heavenlies, not with the blood of others, but by means of his own blood, by means of his having purified sins by the once and for all sacrifice of himself. He went in having obtained, that means having found after diligent search, but even more so it means having obtained after the payment of an incomprehensible cost. This is the same word Herisco used for the man who found a pearl of great price, a margaritas. That's a better margarita than the one you drank recently. Margarita. He found a pearl of great price. Found, Herisco, after search, after diligent search. But then he went and sold everything he had to obtain it. And so the emphasis on Herisco is the great cost which was paid to secure that treasure in a field, that pearl of great price. And you are that treasure in the field, and you are that pearl of great price. And the man who went and sold all that he had to obtain that is Jesus Christ, the man, Christ Jesus. You can look at the parables and not see Christ, and then you'll have something you have to do. Or you can look at the parables and see Christ and see what he has done. The incomprehensible and desperate agony of the Lamb of God on the cross was the price and the cost that secured your redemption. And your redemption is the same as the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, by the blood of Christ we have obtained, we have obtained redemption. We have redemption even the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins and redemption are one in the mind of God. As Ephesians 1.7 says, as Colossians 1.14 says. Now, if you put that together with Matthew 26.28, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. Luke 22.20 puts in new. This is my blood of the new covenant. Poured out for you. Poured out for you, which is being poured out. Matthew 26, 28 says, for many, which is being poured out for many. Who are the many? 
Well, we've seen this many times, many times. For the word many there is found in Matthew 20, 28 also, where he says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right there, he interpreted the parables of the man who sold everything he had to obtain that treasure in the field. And he had already said in another parable in Mark 4.13, the field is the world. He found the treasure in the world. Every human being that ever lived in the course of all time, in this world, in all times, in all places. And he went and sold all that he had to obtain that treasure in the field, to obtain that pearl of great price. It cost him more than we can imagine. It cost him an incomprehensible price, and we only have a glimpse at it when we see the desperate agony of the righteous one on the cross, writhing as a serpent on a pole in an incomprehensible bout of ordeal and suffering to obtain that treasure, to buy that pearl at great cost. How does this apply to me right now, right here? How does this apply to you right now and right here? Well, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies, which belong to God. Don't ever be the slaves of men. Don't ever be the slaves of other people and other people's lusts and other people's ambitions and other people's control over you. You've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-three, And so this word herisco in Hebrews 9, 12 denotes and conjures up the idea of a cost, an incomprehensible cost. When you think of the preciousness of the word eternal redemption, and right down the line, eternal inheritance in Hebrews 9.15, you begin to entertain what kind of cost had to be paid to secure it for a hopeless race of human beings, for those among whom there is none that does any good, None righteous, no, not one. What kind of price secures their eternal redemption? The incomprehensible price. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, and by many he means all. For the scripture says in 1 Timothy 2.5, the man... Christ Jesus. Who is the man who went and sold all that he had to buy the treasure in the field? The man, Christ Jesus. Who is the man who went and sold all that he had and gave all that he was and all that he is to obtain the pearl of great price? The man, Christ Jesus. Who is the mediator between God and man, the only mediator between God and man, who gave his life as a ransom for all. Jesus is meek and lowly of heart. He says it himself. In the only self-description of himself, he says, come to me and learn from me because I'm meek and I'm lowly of heart, meaning I have, a hum I have humility as the God-man. Humility. For the scripture says that he humbled himself and became obedient even to the extent of the death of the cross. Not any death of any cross. As horrific as the crucifixions of men and women 
and even children have been in history. No, this is the death of the cross, the incomprehensible death of the God-man on behalf of all human beings. All. He was humble when he said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He was, in essence, too humble to say for all, for many. When he thought of all that were going to be redeemed, he thought of it as many. When he saw all of humanity in one gaze, in one glance, he sees all of humanity. He said, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for that many, and that's all. We've seen it a thousand times, and it needs a thousand more references. In Romans 5, 18, the one righteous act of the one righteous man secured justification and life for all. And his obedience led to life and righteousness for the many, that many would be constituted as righteous. Many would be constituted as righteous by his one act of obedience, obedience to the extent of the death of the cross, a death in which he experienced and drank to the dregs a cup of death, the wages of sin, which is death for all humanity. He tasted death for everyone. Far from God is my translation of it, and I agree with that. Chorus theu, not caris theu, though they both work in Hebrews 2.9. He tasted death for every person, everyone without exception. Chorus theu, that means apart from God, far from God. And caris theu, they both work by the grace of God. Why chorus that Udo? Why do I use that? Because in Psalm 22, 1, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And why are you so far from helping me? Why are you so far, far from God? He tasted death for everyone in the writhing, desperate agony of the Lamb of God. And Isaiah 53.11 says, and that prophet said this, and as Sid Roth recently made a comment on the, the scriptures, in, as a Jewish man who had a supernatural revelation of Jesus Christ, sometimes you see his ad on the news programs, and it's refreshing because all these other guys get on and say, this is the good news of the gospel. Oh, but there's some bad news. No, there isn't. There's no bad news about it. Well, we've all sinned. Yeah, I'll tell you, there's a wholesome way to look at sin, and there's an unwholesome way of looking at sin. You look at it in the unwholesome way as bad news. I look at it in the wholesome way as sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sins forgiven. That's a wholesome way of viewing my sins. They're forgiven. The only reason I can preach this word today is I know my sins are forgiven. My conscience is purged by the blood of Christ, and my conscience is my connection to the heavens. My conscience is my connection to the heavenlies. And that's why the Holy Spirit made it very clear to me, even today, if you're a preacher of my good news, then you don't need notes. You don't need anything. You need me in you, the hope of glory, and you need to open your mouth and fill it. I'll fill it 
with my glory. And so I pray, Father, magnify your son and buy my body. So there is this discovery, this price, this incomprehensible price. And we've said it recently, there's a wonderful devotional out, I do recommend it, by Oswald Chambers. He died at age 43. He used to train with the military. He was in very good shape. He was a very disciplined man and a preacher. He wrote the great book, great devotional, daily devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. But what I've discovered in my years of study in the Word, and especially right here in Hebrews, is that God gave his utmost for my highest blessing, for my highest blessedness, and for yours. So if I were to write a devotional, I would have to put it this way, God's utmost for my highest, my highest blessing. He seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He gave us every kind of spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He went into heaven itself with not the blood of others, but with his own blood. He purified the heavens as the earth was also purified. The question was asked even recently, what does it mean in Hebrews 9.23 when it says the heavens needed to be purified with greater sacrifices than these? What's it mean? Did the heavens need to be purified? Well, in Job 15.15, the scripture says God does not even regard the heavens as pure. God does not regard the heavens as pure. The heavens are part of God's creation. In the beginning, God created. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. The heavens first, the earth second. The the heavens always have precedence, but they are part of the creature, part of the creation. And because of heaven's connection to earth, the heavens need to be purified as the earth needed to be purified as the sins of all mankind needed to be purified. The Bible then makes a very clear connection, in Hebrews especially, not only with heaven above and earth below, but heaven within and earth outside. That's what Hebrews, that's where Hebrews is going. And that's what I mean by the purification of the conscience. If the heavens are associated with the conscience and the earth related to the body, and the blood of animals served to purify the body, the external part of man, then greater sacrifices than those were needed to purify the conscience, which is connected to the heavens. The conscience or the inner is connected to the heavenly. In Hebrews, heavenly equals interior. Earthly equals exterior. The blood of bulls and goats served to purify the exterior and the earthly. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus spoke as a second Moses, as the greater Moses, as the one superior to Moses, when he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Moses also said, as he had a bucket of blood of bulls and goats, and he had an applicator with hyssop and scarlet, and he had this applicator that he dipped into the bucket of poured out blood and he sprinkled it all over the people he sprayed all the people he sprayed the earthly tent and all the vessels of worship within the earthly tent that are spoken of in Hebrews 9 1 to 6 and he sprinkled all the people 
That's a symbol of Jesus Christ's poured out blood being applied to all people, not just the people of Israel, but to all people. This is not the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of an old covenant broken by man and kept by God. This is the blood of a new covenant poured out for you, poured out for the many. And that's what we do when we have communion service. We remember his death until he comes. It isn't a matter of the communion service trans posing eternal life to us by that ritual. No, it's a matter of internal remembrance and internal expectation. In the Bible, and especially in, Ma- in Matthew, especially in Luke, in fact, 17, 20, and 21, along with Hebrews, we have not just heaven above, earth below, heaven being the place where God proceeds in his action toward man, earth being the recipient of what God's action is that begins in heaven. But in Hebrews, it's a matter of interior heavenly, exterior earthly. The sacrifices of the Old Testament and the blood of bulls and goats serve to ritually purify the external and therefore the earthly. Greater sacrifices were required to purify the heavens, which means simply because the heavens have precedence over the earth, something greater was needed to purify the heavenly over the earthly. That's how the Bible speaks in terms of metaphor. And so the sacrifices, plural, that were required to purify the heavens was a sacrifice singular that comprehended all of the types of sacrifices in the Old Testament was the archetype and the antitype for them all. So we're, we're coming up on that. That's a new thing pulled out of the treasure chest. And I'm a scribe of the kingdom of heaven because I'm pulling out old things and new things. Now in Hebrews 9, 15 to 17, we saw something happen that has never happened elsewhere in the Bible. That's where the Hebrew writer took an analogy between covenant and the last will and testament. Covenant and testament. And he showed how blood is required to fulfill a covenant as death is required to enact a last will and testament. So when Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, being poured out for many, he said, he was saying this is the blood that makes effective the new covenant and all of its promises. This is the blood that makes effective the new covenant and all of its promises. What are the promises connected to the new covenant? Well, for one thing, forgiveness of sins. And when God forgives sins, he forgets them. He's not like us. If you say, oh, I forgive you, but I can never forget, you haven't forgiven them at all. And you're going to hold that over them and blackmail them emotionally for the rest of your life because you're going to hint at it all the time. And every time you talk, you're going to give them a steaming side dish of guilt with that little meal you're giving them. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is forgetfulness. It is this is my blood, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
That's what was promised in the new covenant. I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. Hebrews 8, 12, Hebrews 10, 17, and 18. And remember them no more. Cast them as far as the east is from the west. So that's forgiveness. And so the blood made effective the forgiveness of sins. But now we're talking about forgiveness, which is also redemption. And forgiveness is redemption, according to Ephesians 1.7, by whom, Jesus Christ, we have, by his blood, the forgiveness of sins, that is, redemption. Redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins. If we have the forgiveness of sins, and if he poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and if in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, then he is the redemption for the sins of the whole world, and his death caused the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world. That's Hebrews under the consideration of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. And he forgets those sins. There's a healthy way of thinking about sins. Think about them as forgiven. There's an unhealthy way of thinking about sins. Think about them as not forgiven. Think about them as, well, yeah, forgiven, but not forgotten. Now, a healthy way to think about your sins and my, I think about mine that way. I have a wholesome view of my sins. They're forgiven. There's no bad news in the good news. And that's why I liked what this gentleman named Sid Roth said when he said he read Isaiah 53 to his father and his father screamed at him and said, stop reading about Jesus. And he said, dad, it's in the Bible. But then he said something I didn't really know, that in the synagogues they read Isaiah 52 and they read Isaiah 54, but they will not read Isaiah 53 because that is all about Jesus. And right in the heart of that, what does it say? By his ordeal, he shall justify many. Through his ordeal, through the unspeakable, desperate agony that the righteous one endures on the cross, he will justify many, make many righteous. Paul grabbed a hold of that verse. Rabbi Paul, Apostle Paul, grabbed a hold of that verse and brought it right into Romans 5, 18 and 19. Maybe you can't see it in your cross-references in the Bible, but you can see it if you're like Ricky, who's a seer and a prophet seer of our time. You can see it because in Romans 5, 18, it says that he justified all of humanity. All sinned. That's bad news. No, it isn't. You haven't read the rest of the verse. You haven't read the rest of the passage. All sinned, being justified by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption applies to all who sinned. And that's everybody except for Jesus Christ who knew no sin. And because he knew no sin, he's the only one who could become sin for us so that we, the world, might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's happened. That's happened. Now, I see that. 
I see the world reconciled to God because the Bible tells me God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. It makes you see differently. You see all men clearly. Until then, you're like the guy who Jesus touches his eyes and he says, well, I think I see, I see all these trees walking around. It's kind of like being a greenie. They equate a tree with a person. What's more important, a tree or a person? Don't cut down that tree. Kill that person. Now, Jesus spits and makes mud and applies it on his eye. And he says, now what do you see? He said, I see everything clearly. I see everything clearly. If you see everything clearly, you see that the radical change of situation that happened through Jesus Christ's first coming. And you see it because he's come in the spirit in his second coming. And he's with us in the Holy Spirit. There are three that bear record. There is the blood and the water, which bears record to Jesus' death. And there's the Spirit, who is the truth, who bears record in this time in between of the death of the testator and therefore of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So only there in Hebrews 9, 15 to 17, really through 18, there is a connection between testament and covenant. As testament requires the death of the testator, the covenant requires the blood of a sacrificial victim. And we know Jesus is not only the lamb, but he's the priest. He's the offering priest. He's the offered lamb. He's the sacrificer and the sacrifice. He's the man who sold everything he had to buy the treasure. He found eternal redemption, obtained it through cost that's incomprehensible. And he found it after diligent search. We could call him Jesus the explorer. And so, as Hebrews goes on to say, it requires a, for a will to go into effect. What's the will? Jesus made a will in Testament. He said, in the event of my death, the whole world will receive all things from my Father that I have received. He has made me the heir of all things, I make them the heir of all things. They inherit all things on the event of my death. But his death had to have evidence. In a last will and testament, there has to be the providing of evidence of a death. And we usually say that legally that's a death certificate. Well, that doesn't say anything to me. It doesn't prove somebody died. I remember when I said to my dad, Dad, you're going to be cremated? And he said, yeah, just make sure I'm dead first. And so there was proof of his death. We were there shortly right after my dad passed away, August 12th, way back in 29, 2009. And a lot of other things were going on at that same time. We were there in the room, and my uncle was playing on the radio, of all things. My mother's brother was singing something like the moonlight or some song about the moonlight my dad went into the presence of the Lord at that moment and I always remember he said to me Rick when I die I'm going to make you the executor of my debt <laughs> we weren't really that was a sense of humor he faced death with fearlessness in any case but there was evidence of his death to us who saw him breathe his last or were there at the breathing of the last that's evidence of death but there's a greater evidence of death for our testator, the maker of the will in the case of Jesus Christ. 
And John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, not John the Apostle, not John Zebedee, somebody outside the circle of the Twelve, but in a closer circle with Jesus Christ than the Twelve. Somebody who knew very intimately. Someone who was so close to Jesus that all he had to do was lean back just a little bit and lean right against Jesus at supper and say, who's the one who's betraying you? It's the beloved disciple. He's the first to recognize, it's the Lord! at the beach on the Sea of Tiberias. And Peter dived in the water. But John's the first one to say it's the Lord. John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was so close to the cross, the other, the 12, one had committed suicide, the other 11 got out of Dodge quick and were cowering in an upper room, hiding. They were scattered as the scripture said they would. But this guy wasn't among those that were scattered. He was close to the cross. This beloved disciple was close to the cross. This disciple whom Jesus loved was close to the cross. In John 19, 26, he alone heard from the lips of Jesus Christ the Aramaic equivalent to Tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. In effect, Jesus had already entered into the Holy of Holies in the heavens with blood that was not of others but his own. At that moment, for that moment, captured all that Jesus did. He created a new heavens and new earth. In fact, at that moment, at that moment when Jesus said to Telestai, he said, the new creation is finished. Creation is done. Creation is consummated now. All things have been made new. This is God speaking from his throne. This is Christ the Lamb speaking from the throne of God to announce that all is finished. It's done. This beloved disciple knew. But he went on to say this. Jesus knew that it was finished. Tetelestai happens twice there. 1928. Jesus had it in his interior knowledge. Jesus knew that it was finished. And then he cried out, it is finished. What is whispered to us in secret, we cry out or we speak out. Jesus spoke out what the father told him, son, it's finished. And he said, it's finished. No doubt he caught the eye of the beloved disciple. But the beloved disciple knew that Jesus then died, bowed his head, gave up the spirit and died. But what is his death certificate? We hit this a little bit on Wednesday. What is the death certificate? It happened courtesy of a Roman soldier who took his spear and drove it into the side between the ribs of Jesus Christ. And out came a gushing forth of blood and water instantly. What is that? Evidence of death. But not evidence of any old death or any death of any crucified man. Evidence of the death of the divine man, the testator, and therefore the release of the will and testament. At that moment, the death of the testator was evinced. Evidence of the death of the testator was revealed. And John said, I saw this. I bear witness. And you know what else he said? And I know that my witness is true. I know that my testimony is true. Is that arrogance? No. That's called cognitive theory. 
That means that John, the beloved disciple, had come already to the conclusion that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. He had come to the conclusion that after reflection in saying, is this the Son of God, through proofs that are too innumerable to even put in a book in John 21, 25, he came to the conclusion that this Jesus was the Christ. He came to the conclusion that this Jesus had died, that this Jesus was the testator of the last will and testament of God. And if we want to take it from Hebrews, which is my next step, to go from Hebrews, take it from there to another study altogether, which is my next step, and I've already begun it, taking it from Hebrews... Uh, That will and testament is the will of God the Father, which is a will to save all mankind. And it's a will that all will come to know the truth. So what's another promise of the new covenant, which is fulfilled and made effective by the blood of Jesus Christ? How about this one? All will know me. All will know me. All will know. Know me from the least to the greatest, says the Lord. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Who? All. All will know me. I will be their people. I will be their God rather. They will be my people. That I will be their God means I am their righteousness. I am their justification. That they are my people means I am their sanctification. That they there means the world is because he said, all will know me. This is my blood which makes effective the promise that all will know God. All will know my Father. That's what he's saying when he says, poured out for many. That's what Paul meant when he interpreted it and said, a ransom for all. He sold all that he had. He gave his utmost to bring us from the lowest to the highest. And seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean much to me that I'm seated in heavenly places. What means a lot to me is I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm in Christ Jesus. And he's in me, in this world, in this time in between. And so we know that... He obtained this eternal redemption at cost incomprehensible. We know that blood and death are equivalent. This would have solved so much quibbling and so much divisiveness years ago when there was this big argument about the figurative and literal blood of Jesus Christ. John saw the literal blood emerging from his side. What is the significance of the literal substance of the blood that came from the chest cavity of Jesus Christ pierced by a Roman soldier's spear? It became evidence along with water, blood clots and serum became evidence of the death of the testator, the death of the maker of the will and testament. It became evidence, therefore, that the inheritance, the eternal inheritance could go to all of the beneficiaries and all of the beneficiaries is all of mankind in all of its times and all of its places. That's why John could have stopped right there in John 19.35. He said, I've testified of this that you, the reader, may believe like I believe. 
because believing will justify you and have, give you salvation? No. Believing will give you a whole lot of happiness. Believing will give you a whole lot of peace. Believing will give you the happiness and peace of the kingdom of God, the experience of the life to come now. For Jesus said it in John 3.15, the Son of Man is lifted up. As a serpent on the pole, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so shall the Son of Man, speaking of himself, be lifted up. That all who believe in him will have eternal life. And he means all will have eternal life because all will see him. Every eye will see him. And so everyone will believe and all will have eternal life. We will all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We will all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Why? Because God's will made effective through the blood of Christ is that Everyone would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. And the knowledge of the truth is the knowledge of the Son of God. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free, Jesus said. You will know the Son and the Son will liberate you indeed. You will be free indeed. The truth he's talking about coming to know is the truth that's embodied, that's incarnate in Jesus Christ. And it's the truth that is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit isn't just the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is the truth that Jesus is. He is the truth that is incarnate in the man, Christ Jesus. First, John 5, 6. John 14, 6. Ephesians 4, 21. Wherever you want to look, First Timothy 2, 3, and 4. God's will is that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And because it's the blood of the covenant, it isn't just for the forgiveness of sins. It's for the guarantee that all will come to know the Lord in the saving knowledge of knowing. That's how Jesus announces universal saving significance, his universal saving significance. You ask him, if you asked him and said, who are you pouring out your life for? He would say, for many. Believe me, many. What do you mean by many? Do I have to tell you through the epistles? Somebody will speak for me. Paul, who do I mean by many? You mean everybody! Well, hey, writer to the Hebrews, shepherd teacher who wrote Hebrews, what do, you, what do you think I mean when I say I'm sacrificing my life for many? You mean everybody. You tasted death for everybody. That's what you mean. And Jesus probably smiles and says, yeah, that's, that's right. That's true. See, he's a lot more easygoing than you are and that, I'm go that I am because he's easy to be around. He's our friend. He doesn't get all stuck up like Christian religious people so he's he has humility and so in Hebrews nine nineteen, what does it say about Moses Moses took this applicator with water blood and water that's the evidence of the death of the testator he takes blood and water and as a symbolic act he sprinkles it on the earthly tent 
He sprinkles it on all the furniture in the tent, all the vessels of worship, and then he sprays it over all the people, which again is a depiction. Here's an insight. An insight comes from Hebrews 9, 19 to 21. This spraying of shed or poured out animal blood is a type and a shadow of the antitype and the archetype of Jesus Christ's blood being sprinkled on all of humanity and all the vessels of worship and all of created reality and the redemption, therefore, of all mankind and the redemption even of the, all the created universe. And so that's an insight. For without, the scripture says in Hebrews 9.22, for without the pouring forth of blood, there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness there, aphesis, means cancellation of guilt as well as cancellation of debt as well as forgiveness of sins. And so, I love the next verse. It says, for... He went into heaven itself in 924. And again, in 923, we made a little reference to this, and I'll have to go back and really teach it out and exegete it. But the heavens require better sacrifices than these. That's a figure of speech. If the earth relates to the body, and the pouring out and the sprinkling of the blood of bulls and goats serve to purify the body, that means Ritual purification means you can come back to the synagogue. You can come in fellowship with the people of God. You're not an outsider. You're not excommunicated. You've been purified by the blood of bulls and goats and by the water and ashes of a red heifer and sprinkled on you. You have, did that create a purification? Yes, it did, of the external, of the earthly. But there is the internal that need to be purified, which is connected to the heavenly. The heavenly or the conscience had to be purified with better sacrifices than these of animals. So with his own blood, he went into the Holy of Holies in the heavens itself in 924, having obtained this eternal redemption for us. His blood has the power to purify the heavenly, which is the conscience. The kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God, is within you. You say, no, that's supposed to be among you. Jesus was among those people, and therefore the kingdom of God was among them. But that would have to be the Greek word en meso, M-E-S-O, en meso. He didn't say the kingdom of God is en meso. He said the kingdom of God is entos, within you. The kingdom of God is within you. It doesn't come with observation. It doesn't come with a telescope. It doesn't come with the James Webb telescope or the Hubble telescope. It doesn't come with observation by artificial intelligence or human intelligence. It doesn't come by viewing through empirical view. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is within you. If the kingdom of God is within me and Jesus Christ is within me, then Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God in me. It's the kingdom of God. It's within. The conscience has to be cleansed because the conscience is the connection to heaven as the body is the connection to earth. It is out of the earth that the first man, Adam, was fashioned. 
And the conscience is the part that was breathed by God into the body. Therefore, the conscience needs to be purified by better sacrifices. And he uses the word sacrifices in the plural just to show the intensity of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ that fulfills all the types of all the kinds of sacrifices. That's why when Abraham said, where's, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? God said, to Abraham, or Abraham was said to Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. And he saw a ram in the thicket. Why a ram? Because the lamb is going to take the place of all the rams, all the goats, all the bulls, all the doves and the pigeons and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament will be realized and fulfilled infinitely superseded by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which purifies the heavens in connection with the earth, purifies the conscience that we might serve the living God. So there's a connection between the conscience in Hebrews 9.14 and the purification of the heavens in 9.23. Our conscience is our connection with heaven. Our body is a connection with the earth. The Old Testament sacrifices and the blood poured out then sprinkled purifies the body, purifies the external, purifies the earth. The blood of Jesus Christ which is infinitely superior, his once and for all sacrifice, not once a year, his going into heaven itself purifies the heavens, which means purifies our conscience from a consciousness of sins and gives us a wholesome view of our sins, that they're forgiven. And that's our connection to heaven. That's our connection to the kingdom of God in time. That's the beginning of our experience of the kingdom of God in this world. For believing in Jesus Christ means that you not only don't perish, but you have the life of the coming age right now in the present. That's what Jesus meant when he said, that's what John, I think that was John's commentary, the beloved disciple's commentary in 316, not Jesus' own words, but John's commentary. For God loved the world in this way, so much, so much that he gave his utmost for your highest. So much that he gave his son, he gave his son his utmost that anyone who believes, that's anyone whom the Holy Spirit evokes faith in, will not only not perish, the whole world's not going to perish. The whole world's not going to perish, but you who believe not only don't perish, but because he is the Savior of everybody, especially those that believe, if you believe, you enter into that especially category who are not only not going to perish, but are going to have an experience of the life of the coming age now, right now. And it gets better and better. And adversity gets greater and greater, yeah, but the life gets better and better inside and so I have to close pretty soon because there's a few more insights popping in Hebrews 9 it's it's a pop it's jiffy pop in my mind it's popping popping reminds me of when I had my both grandsons for a weekend and they were both about this tall and the whole weekend sounded like this papa 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 and it was, like, it was like a jiffy pop thing. With a pop, they're all popping. The insights are popping now. There's a galaxy of them. So I'll have to kind of hunker down and get a couple of them in. 
And that, the first one is in 9.25. 9.25 says, if he was like the Old Testament priests in the law of similarity and dissimilarity, if he was like the offerings like the old offerings of the old Levitical cultus, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now as it is, once in the end of the ages, suntaleia, that's once at the termini of the ages, the end of one and the beginning of another at a cross, he appeared to put away sin put away sin per se, sin itself. And that means all sins because he put away sin itself by the offering of himself. That appearing, now we have two appearings, 924. He entered into heaven itself to appear before the face of God, literally to appear before the face of God for us, for us, for us. So you can look at it as three appearances or two appearances. If you're going to look at all three, you have to look at, there are two appearings where he appears before the eyes of men, before the eyes of people. 500 people saw him in resurrection. He's, he appeared the first time, which culminated in a lot of eyes seeing him. Crucified, A lot of eyes seeing him having been raised. He appeared the first time. As a priest, he appeared going to the cross. He appeared as one who was going to have his blood poured out for us. He was the sacrificing priest and the sacrificial lamb. His second appearing is not before the eyes of men, but before the eyes of our heart. For he appears before God the Father on our behalf. How long does that go on in this time in between? During this time in between, he's not only here in the Holy Spirit in us, he is representing us before the face of the Father. And if you want an insight, Hebrews 9.14 is an insight of the triune saving God, the saving triune God. How much more shall the blood of Christ, if the blood of bulls and goats served to purify the body, and it did, how much more shall the blood of Christ who offered himself without spot, amomas is a, an adjective that describes the spotless lambs, the lamb at the heart of Hebrews. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God the Father. Son, Christ, the spotless lamb. Eternal spirit, he offered himself through the eternal spirit. God, God the Father, to God. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who offered himself without spot to God, purify your conscience? Conscience, 914, corresponds to the heavens, 923. His sacrifice that purified the heavens purifies your interior being, your internal being where the kingdom of God is entos within not en meso among within you he purifies the conscience and that's your connection to the heavenlies and so 926 now once at the end of the ages once at the termini of the ages I got to explain that even further 
he appeared to put away sin by the offering of himself. That's his first appearing. His second appearing is in 928. Having offered himself, having borne the sins of many, that means having borne the utmost cost to secure our redemption. Having borne the sins of many, 928. Having borne the sins of many, carried the weight, carried the penalty, carried the ordeal, carried the wages of the sins of many, meaning all. He appears a second time. He will appear a second time. That appearing the second time is the appearance of the, the archpriest. He comes out of the other side of the Holy of Holies, as it were. He comes out of the Holy of... You see, if he went into the Holy of Holies and did with the Na, what Nahab and Abihu did and offered strange fire on the altar, they would have died and had to be dragged out of there. But this priest went in. When the priest went in and his sacrifice was acceptable for the people for another year on Yom Kippur, he would come out and appear before all the people and say, It worked! The blood that I offered and sprinkled on the mercy seat was accepted by God whose presence glows like Shekinah in between the cherubim overlooking. I saw it all and we're, we're good. This archpriest appears the second time before the eyes of all for whom he died. And that means there'll be a resurrection involved. That means every human being will be contemporary with every other, every, every other human being. All epochs will be simultaneous. All times, one time, he will appear before the eyes of many, which is all humanity in all of its times. And there will be the change of condition that he will affect in his second appearing. So you can look at it two ways. Three appearings if you count the appearing before the face of God that's going on right now. So my hope isn't a shame that he hasn't come yet so that everyone sees him because I know he sees the Father and the Father sees him and seeing him, he sees me in the time in between. That's pretty comforting. And so we look at it either three, three, three appearings. He appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, he appears again bringing salvation to those who wait for him. Those who wait for him happens to be all mankind, the living and the dead, First, Second Timothy 4, 1 and 2, the living and the dead are waiting for him, whether they know they're waiting for him or not. Romans 8, 19 to 23 says all creation, along with Revelation 5, 13, is waiting for him, whether they know they're waiting or not. The cow doesn't know she's waiting. She's waiting to be milked, but she doesn't know that with the rest of creation, she's waiting for the Son of Man, for Jesus Christ, the great archpriest, to appear again with salvation, bringing the so great salvation that he won at the cross, he brings to manifest it to all of creation. That's why, jumping back to 927, this will be the last insight we're popping with today. Hebrews 927. Without a vision, the people perish. With a vision, the people flourish. A vision is a series of insights. I'm giving you a series of insights today so that you won't perish this week, but flourish instead. And so, Hebrews 9.27, even as it is given to men or everyone to die, 
In your translation, I'll lay odds, says, and after that, the judgment. Does it say that? If you got your Bible, do you have your Bible? Does it, it says, it says after that. It, the word is meta. And more times than not, meta doesn't mean after, it means accompanying. Everyone to die, which is a judgment. Everyone is given to die once with judgment. Thanatos, death, with metacresis. Thanatos, metacresis. To die once accompanied by death or by judgment. The point that he's making here is not to any old person dying or to all of us dying. It's the point is that Jesus Christ died and his death was accompanied by the judgment of all mankind. He died once for all. And when he died, all died in him in 2 Corinthians 5.14. When he died, all died. He died once and his death was accompanied by judgment. His death and his Judgment are one. His death and my judgment are one. His death and the judgment of the whole world is one. It is for judgment that I came into this world, Jesus said in John 9, 39. It is for judgment that I came into this world. And the, he called himself the Son of Man. And the Father gave him all judgment. I have received the privilege to be the judge of all because I am that Son of Man you read about in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, presenting myself for everyone as the representative for everyone. I am that Son of Man, so the Father has committed and entrusted all judgment to me. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with all judgment. When I die... All judgment will have happened in me, for you, forever. And so there will be a single outcome of judgment. Those that have done evil, which is everybody that ever lived except Jesus, will be raised unto a judgment. And the judgment there is justification. And those that have done good, and that means we all have once in a while, by accident or something, done good. We will be raised unto life. That means all of humanity who are guilty of evil and are also credited sometimes with good, all humanity will have a single outcome of judgment, which is justification and life, because all judgment has been given to me. So Hebrews 9.27 isn't saying everybody dies once and after that they're going to be judged. It's saying, no, just as everybody dies once as a judgment... So he died once, and in his death was the judgment of all humanity. So when he appears a second time, it's not for sin, it's, it's without sin. And he appears to what? To bring salvation. Yeah, but to bring salvation to who? For those that are waiting. Oh, then only for those that are waiting. Yeah, but everybody's waiting. Everybody's waiting. All creation is waiting. Does it know it's waiting? No. All the world, the Hindus are waiting for the salvation of the, of the great archpriest. Do they know they're waiting for the great archpriest? No, they're waiting for Shakti or Vishnu or some other person. They're waiting for one of their 900 billion gods to come, or all of them at once. 
They don't know they're waiting for Jesus Christ, the great archpriest who made atonement for their sins. The Buddhist is waiting. The atheist is waiting. They don't know what they're waiting for. We do know what we're waiting for. We do know who we're waiting for. That's our advantage. That's our privilege. But that doesn't make us better than anyone else. It makes us know something they don't know. That's all. And so what's our job? Tell them what we know that they don't know yet. Will they all believe it? Probably not. Will most of them not believe it? Probably not. But the Holy Spirit's with us to convince the world of sin. Oh, you mean to convince the world that there's terrible sinners? No, to convince the world that Jesus Christ's covenant took away sin. Of righteousness, because I go to my father, Jesus said, meaning... He's going to convict the world that they better be righteous? No. He's going to convict the world that Jesus Christ is their righteousness. And of judgment, because the prince of this world was judged. Jesus drew all judgment to himself. That's the gospel. And so we know something the world doesn't know. It doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us Gnostics. But it gives us an ambassadorial function to say, be reconciled to God. Receive that reconciliation. You've been reconciled to God, so receive and acknowledge that reconciliation. He calls you friends. You're no longer his enemies. There ain't no good news news that has bad news with it in the gospel. The gospel is good news. Ain't no bad news with it. Thank you, Father, for these insights. May they stack up and conglomerate in our hearts and become, by their accumulation, salvation in time as we wait for the salvation that you will bring on a given day to all of creation, all of created reality, all of people in all times. And oh, how we wait and anticipate your coming, the coming of your Son, when all peoples will be contemporary And all will be raised from the dead to enjoy righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That which we have in a small measure, even now. Let us go forth from here, Father, then with hope overflowing. And in the joy and peace that comes only in the believing of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.